today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. was one who feared God and shunned evil. Now, I tell you what, if we had that kind of a testimony in each one of our lives, would, man, what, what a blessing that would be. Man, we're blameless, we're upright, we, we fear God, we shun evil. What a great testimony that is for the world. And he's blessed, he's blessed in a, in a material way. It says that he had seven sons and three daughters that were born to him. Oh, also he had possession of 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very large households. In other words, many servants to help him out. We should all aspire to be like Job. He was a great man. Scripture tells us he was the greatest in all the East in his time. His faith was strong. He was devoted to God, and God blessed him greatly. Yet, as Pastor David reminds us in today's message, despite of all this, his road would not remain so smooth and pleasant. We know that God allowed incredible calamity at the hand of Satan in order to demonstrate Job's faithfulness in the face of even the harshest circumstances. Now here's Pastor David as he begins his message, Ancient Problems. Actually, we're going to go through a little bit of a process tonight. I know that we are, we're in the midst of our Through the Bible in a Year, but I feel that it's important to take a, a, a bit of tonight's time together to deal a little bit with Bible interpretation and Bible application. We're going to look a little bit of that tonight because, again, as you're studying the Bible as a whole, you actually go to, through different literary forms, and the way that you interpret and apply those literary forms are actually quite a bit different. And so, number one, you need to realize what you're studying, and then you re- need to realize, okay, how do I apply that to my life? Both to interpret it and then to apply it to your life. Uh, I don't know how much of you have thought about that very much at all, but uh, within the scriptures, there's primarily like three different areas of literary forms that nearly all of scripture can kind of fall into. The three different forms are the story form, the, the narratives, and that's, uh, that's actually about 75% of the Bible kind of runs into the story form. The uh, first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that falls into that. Then you move right into Joshua and Judges 
churches, they're all story form, they're, they're narratives, uh, all of the history books, First uh, and Second Samuel, uh, Kings, Chronicles, all of those run as narratives all the way up through Esther. Uh, also in the New Testament, then you have the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. The Acts is a historical narrative. They all fall into that same form, that same uh, literary style. The second one that you have is the instructional form or the exhortation. In other words, somebody's writing something to give you uh, a better understanding of doctrine or in teaching uh, a lesson. So, of course, all the uh, letters of the apostles in the New Testament would fall into that instructional form. They're exhorting uh, the, the church or individuals, as the case may be, on particular areas. They, again, cover areas of doctrine, theology, uh, the very precepts of the Christian life, how that all fits together. And then the third form is the uh, poetic form. And poetic form really covers a a wide range or a wide thought. Not only uh, the poetry of things like the, the, the Psalms, but it also covers areas of prophecy as well as the parables of Jesus. Now, granted, there's no one book of parables. The parables are found within the Gospels, but it is a form that, again, you you would interpret and you would apply the parables much different than you would, say, the book of Romans, uh, it's just two different ways, two different styles. So you need to know, you need to understand that when you read through. So again, in the poetic form, uh, again, the writer kind of expresses these everyday truths uh, it, with, with situations where he uses symbolism and what's called parallelism, and we'll look at that in a moment, uh, as well as analogies. And, you know, an analogy is like, uh, man, he is... Uh, uh, he is as tall as a pine tree. You know, that would be an analogy, okay? Maybe a poor one, but it's one anyway. So as, as, as we actually get into this, because we're actually going to be, again, looking through the, the books of poetry, which are Job, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. We're going to begin a journey through that. I actually, at one point in time over the last two or three weeks, I thought we could cover all of those books actually just in one night. We just kind of blow right through them. And I, then I started getting in and I realized, no, that's not going to work at all, not at all. Well, when we think about poetry or the poet, poetic form, you know, uh, in, in the West we think... Uh, Roses are red, violets are blue, I've got ice cream, too bad about you. Uh, kind of, you know, that kind of a thing. You know, meter and rhyme, that kind of, you know, the, the old thing. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. That kind of a thing. And then Mary had to clean up the mess. But anyway, uh, when you get to Hebrew poetry, it's a whole lot different, okay? Uh, the Hebrew poet doesn't connect in rhyme or, or meter or rhythm like that. The, the Hebrew poet connects, in, again, with thought and, and idea, and that's how they pull it together. They use uh, non-literal or figurative language a lot. Uh, that idea of what I said, parallelism, and again, we'll look at that in a moment symbolism, analogies, all of that uh, picture language, they use that a lot, and that's all a part of Hebrew 
poetic form. Now, without going too deep into that, because believe me, we could go a lot deeper than probably you're ready to to look at tonight, let's simply look at an example of that really quick, if you could. Take your Bibles, hopefully you have an Old Testament with you, turn to the Song of Solomon, the Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. We're going to look at uh, the use of analogies with uh, picture language real quick. Okay, let's just look at the first couple of verses. And again, this, this is the man speaking to the woman there. And it says, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> now, that doesn't sound too romantic to us, does it? <laughs> but let's go back at the time, okay? Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. All your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. It's like, you got a full mouth of teeth, girl, is what, is what he's saying, and, and they're just all white and beautiful. Now, I got, I got to say, you, the, the first thing that you got to realize that in Hebrew poetry, you cannot, you dare not literally interpret the verses, okay? You will get yourself in trouble. You'll get yourself in trouble physically, relationship-wise, and most likely doctrinally-wise. You cannot literally translate these things or interpret or apply them. Another form of figurative poetic style is what's called, and and I've shared this a couple times, Parallelism, 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 just think of that, you know, two lines running along together. Flip over to the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 1, actually, is what we're going to look at. And a quick, this is, this is just a, a, a quick sample out of a multiple that we could have picked out, but Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. This is a case of parallelism. The psalmist declares, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What you have here is a, a, a progression of, of, of thought to drive home the point of what he's trying to speak here. Now, what he is saying, in essence, if we kind of flip it to the other side, he says, blessed is the man who walks not. Well, in essence, what he's saying is, if a man is unwise, he would move from walking in the counsel of the ungodly to progressively standing in the path of sinners until finally he ends up seating or sitting in the seat of the scoffers. So this kind of progression that flows here. And in essence, what he's saying, a man that goes on that uh, is going to be in trouble, but a man that does not go that path, he's going to be blessed. You're not going to, again, walk in the counsel of the ungodly. You're not going to stand in the path of the sinners. You're not going to sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, that next verse, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Again, this, this kind of adds to the thought. And, and again, it, it more or less repeats itself within the verse with some added emphasis to it. In essence, what he's saying there is the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. And as a matter of fact, he delights in the law so much that he meditates on it day and night. 
So he's saying the same thing twice, just different ways, on a different track. That's parallelism or a a sample of it. So these type of poetic structures, you're going to find all throughout those poetic uh, uh, scriptures. When you get to stuff like the uh, prophets or the prophecies and the parables, you're going to see it but in a, a bit of a different way, a different fashion. Well, tonight we're going to begin with the book of Job, and in the book of Job, it is the poetic form, and it's still, there's, there's areas within it that uh, are, are very intriguing. With the fact that it is a poetic form, the one thing we need to remember, it is still a real story about a real man who had real issues in life. Let me ask you this, how many of you guys know what God is doing all the time? How many of you know what God is doing? How many of you know what God is doing most of the time? Probably very little of the time, right? (laughs) Why would that be? Because he's so much greater than we are. And about the time we try to figure out why God is doing something, guess what? We're usually wrong because he's got something much grander than what we can even begin to imagine. Now, that's the dilemma that... Job and his friends find themselves in there in the book of Job. It's an ancient problem all the way back from the time of Job. Now, many consider Job probably to be one of the best examples of ancient literature that there is available, that one particular book. It's believed that it was written about the time of Abraham, which would have put it about 4,000 years ago. And even in that ancient culture, there's still this amazing flow of, of structure within his writings. So this isn't some you know, primordial man. This isn't some ignorant man that's writing this. No, this is an intelligent understanding who has a, a great grasp of language as he's writing these things down. Now, within the structure of the first two chapters here of Job, you're going to find actually the narrative style. They're just simply telling the story, bringing in the characters of all that's going to take place. Then beginning in chapter 3, the poetic style kicks in, and it goes all the way through uh, for the next 40 chapters until the end of chapter 42, and then we return for a short section back in the narrative style. And again, it's an amazing way that the whole book is laid out, and there's, there's this continual progression and rotation and flow through the whole book. It's an amazing book, particularly when you think how old it is. Now, in the midst of the book, we find the, the, you know, Job lamenting, he's crying out because of the situation that he finds himself in. And then that is going to be followed by the counsel of his quote unquote friends. Uh, if you know anything about the book of Job, you realize these friends are not the ones you really necessarily want to have counseling you. But uh, again, he gets this uh, counsel from his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and, and Zophar. And then he comes back and he tries to exonerate himself. He tries to, again, plead his cause. They come back, bring more literally accusations against him, saying, hey, Job, we know exactly why you're going through what you're going through. Come on, be honest with yourself, Job. You got, 
you got hidden sin, don't you, Job? You might as well fess up, buddy. That's why you're going through. And Job said, no, I, I don't have anything hidden. You know, and, and, and he tries to, again, stand in his integrity. And his good buddies, his friends, you know, come back and say, oh, no, no, man, we, we, we know you. You're always putting yourself up above everybody. And again, Job, through this whole battle, this battle goes through the entire book until finally it comes to uh, one area, this young guy, Elihu, a, a younger man, Elihu, then he comes literally at Job with this major rebuke, more so than these other guys, and he carries that on through chapter 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, and 38. The young guy is rebuking the older guy. And when we, we'll look at that in a moment, you realize, man, this guy's got some audacity and ego mixed to the max in his life. It's then in chapter 38 through 41 that then God comes out. And he begins, again, he comes and he begins speaking through a whirlwind, it says. And in, in essence, he's telling Job, you know what? You know nothing at all about what's going on in your life. You simply need to trust me as almighty God. Let me encourage you tonight, right now, all the way across the room, you know nothing at all about what God is doing in your life. What you need to do is trust him as almighty God. Guys, if we could just get to that point, it wouldn't mean that necessarily that our road would be any easier, but there would be peace in the middle of that road because our trust then just simply comes before or goes toward God. In the last chapter, chapter 42, Job comes to the point where he literally, now he doesn't bow to the knowledge of his friends. No, now he he bows to the knowledge and the majesty of almighty God. And then God turns around and he rebukes all of his friends that spoke without any knowledge, without any understanding. They just came and started blabbering along. And then after that, God restores Job's health and his wealth. He gives him more children, and he increases his riches. It is a, it's an amazing story, again, of just pressing through in the midst of the time when, when you have absolutely no idea what's going on, but you just need to trust that God does know and that God is moving in ways that you and I cannot even begin to imagine why. Let's look at Job, if you would. In chapter 1, we'll begin right there. In chapter 1, Job, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and shunned evil. Now, I tell you what, if we had that kind of a testimony in each one of our lives, man, what a blessing that would be. Man, we're blameless, we're upright, we fear God, we shun evil. What a great testimony that is for the world. And he's blessed, he's blessed in a material way. It says that he had seven sons and three daughters that were born to him. Oh, also he had possession of 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very large households. In other words, many servants to help him out. And so this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Don't lose that 
very end tag. He was the greatest of all the men there in the East at that point in time. It was immense what he had, his riches. Why, his, verse four, his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. You realize he had seven sons, so that's a feast every day of the week. It's just, hey, this week, is, or Monday's at my house, Tuesday it's yours, Wednesday is yours, Thursday, and then it comes back to Monday at mine, and everybody comes. It's just party, feast all the time, hanging out, and inviting the sisters and their family. A tight family. They'd come in, they'd eat and drink with them, and so it was. When the days of feasting had run their course, like at the end of the week or whatever it would be, that Job would send and sanctify them. And would rise early in the morning, he'd offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it might be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus, Job did this regularly. It's just the pattern of the guy. This is the heart of the guy. As we continue reading, we look and see there there was a day in verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, there's there's a lot of theology in that one verse that we don't understand, okay? There's just a whole lot there that we could spend a lot of time speculating about. Why is Satan right there with God, and why is he able to bring all of this stuff... Again, that's, that's a lot deeper than we're going tonight. So let's just leave it at this, that where it's at. Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, where, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Verse 8 troubles me. I want, I want God to know my name, okay? But there's sometimes, like in this situation... I hope he remembers your name and not mine. (laughs) Verse eight, and and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For There's no one like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord and says, oh yeah, but does Job fear God for nothing? Why, you place his hedge around him and his house and all that he has on everything. You've blessed his work, the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But if you'd put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, why, he'd surely curse you right to your face, God. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put put forth your hand on him, on him physically. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord, and it just so happens that on this day, his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. The message came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians uh, attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another one came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands. They made a raid on the camels and and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another one also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the older brother house. Behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. What does it say? And he worshiped. I submit to you that's a peculiar man. Because his heart was already set on worship, even when calamity came, he was still able to worship. Surprisingly and sadly, too many followers of Jesus are Bible illiterate. They know a few basic names or facts, but the abundance of truth and love inside this great text is getting lost. This is why Pastor David feels it's necessary to take some time to work through the Bible in this series, and we're so glad you've joined us here on The Open Word for it. Each time you tune in, Pastor David will be giving you an accurate and succinct dialogue of a book of Scripture, pointing out the key passages and truths that everyone needs to be aware of. If you missed any part of today's message or any part of this series, we encourage you to visit our website. You'll be able to listen again at theopenword.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, and please feel free to share these teachings with your friends and family. Everyone can benefit from this Through the Bible series. Are you in the Casa Grande area? If so, Pastor David has an invitation to extend to you. Every message you hear on The Open Word is one that I shared here at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande, a great church where I enjoy my role as senior pastor. I'd love to see your face next time I get up to teach, and I'd really enjoy meeting you afterward. Please consider coming on out and joining us this weekend. You'll be able to find all the information you need at theopenword.com. Just click the Calvary Chapel link at the bottom of the page see you there. Thanks, Pastor David. That's all for today. But join us next time to continue through the Bible here on The Open Word.